Enrollment is open for Thomas's upcoming six-session live online course, Navigating the Levels of Trauma Healing. Explore how to work with the impacts of collective crises and challenges and learn tools to manage anxiety, overwhelm, and nervous system dysregulation during times of accelerated change and disruption. In this all-new curriculum, Thomas and expert guest speakers will engage in ecosystemic practices to collectively explore our resilience, agency, and capacity to stay present and find deeper meaning. Click the link in our show notes to learn more and enroll. Or go to www.navigatingthelevelsoftrauma.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is the point of relation. The following interview was recorded during a previous Collective Trauma Summit an online gathering convened annually by Thomas Hubel to share ideas and inspire action for healing, individual, ancestral, and collective trauma. Visit CollectiveTraumaSummit.com to listen to featured talks from our most recent summit and sign up to be the first to know when the next summit is announced. Zainab is co-founder of DaughtersForEarth.org, Chief Awareness Officer at FindCenter.com, and host of the Redefined Podcast. She is the author of four books, including the national bestseller, Between Two Worlds, Escape from Tyranny, Growing Up in the Shadow of Saddam, and her latest, Freedom is an Inside Job, Owning Our Darkness and Our Light to Heal Ourselves and the World. She is the creator and host of several shows, including Hashtag Me Too, Now What on PBS, and through her eyes with Zainab Salbi at Yahoo News. Zainab founded Women for Women International, a humanitarian development nonprofit dedicated to serving women survivors of war by offering support, tools, and access to life-changing skills to move from crisis and poverty to stability and economic self-sufficiency. Welcome back to the Collective Trauma Summit 2022. Um, I'm Thomas Hubel and I'm the convener of the summit. And I'm so happy to sit here today with Zainab Salbi. Welcome, Zainab. Uh, so grateful that you're here with us. Pleasure. I am very much looking forward to this conversation, Thomas. Thank you for having me. Oh, yes, it's an honor. And um, because I always love uh, conversations because you you bring a lot of real life experience here into our summit and that's that's amazing and I would love to hear more about it and and also you you did a lot of work like hands-on work and a lot of work in various sectors so let's I would love to walk with you through some of the areas of your impact in the world and um and my first, since we are here, we are looking at collective trauma. And um, my first question before we go into collective trauma is basically what 
put you on the track to do the work that you do. So some of us have a vocation. They know we know very early on that that's what we want to do. Some of us are being put on the track by life circumstances. Some of us, of course, have both. And um, I'm curious, how did you come to work with so many hundreds of thousands of women or I don't know how many women you touched and um, and then do climate work, journalism. So what, what, what made you be a humanitarian uh, in many ways? So maybe you can... Well, for the longest time, I was unconscious about it, right? You know, what the reasons and... But I would say it started really at a very young age. And I think those of us who know their purpose in life at a young age are lucky simply lucky you know mm. um i happened to know it when i was 16 years old um because up until then i was just reading books and my mother told me a lot about women's rights and she would like buy me books about women's rights and about um injustices around the world including in america and slavery and i'm you know i grew up in baghdad iraq right but here's a mother who was like teaching me about all the injustices in the world, but particularly as it you know applies to women. And I remember at 16, and she was driving in in Baghdad, and you know it was sunset, and I turned to her and I said, "Mama, when I grow up, I'm going to help all women around the world." And she gave me the best one of the best gifts she has given me, which is to look at me and says, "Honey, you can and you will." And wow. that really was a wow, right? Because I mean. I think all of us have dreams. It takes one person to believe in us for us to be able to move forward. Uh, you know, and, and that was in that case, it was my mom. And, you know, many things happened at that time. I, you know, went to school for to study something completely different. I got married and ended up being abusive and I left the marriage in America. And at 22 slash 23, I was in America and found myself, you know, stranded. You know, Iraq had already been in war with Kuwait. There was the sanction and the embargo. I found myself escaping an arranged uh, abusive marriage with $400 in my pocket and vowing to myself that I will build my life from zero and do something about it. And during that time, um, I learned about the war in Bosnia. It's a country, frankly, I did not know anything about. You know, I did not know its existence. I did not know much about Yugoslavia. I no no emotional connection to that country or that part of the world. But I learned and studied, and I um, that there were women who are gang raped in rape camps. They were given numbers, and when their numbers were called, they were getting raped, you know, over and over and over by Serbian soldiers. Um, they were young kids and older women and all range of ages. And something in me, you know, like just boiled. And I was like, I have got to do something about it. And now connecting the ideological with our personal, right? I grew up in Iraq seeing injustices in front of me. Uh, I grew up close to Saddam Hussein. My father was his pilot and we socialized with him often. And, and I knew about injustice. I was not oblivious to the injustices that were happening to women and men in Iraq. But I could not do anything or say anything about it because I also knew to do anything about it would be to endanger my family. 
you know, and, and that's the fear. You grow up in fear of the dictator. And at that time, at 23, I was in America. And though I did not have any family or financial resources, I got remarried, but still my husband and I were both students. Um, I knew that that it's my time. Like you can, you can, when you see injustice and you can do something about it, you must. This is my value. Because to avoid it is to legitimize it and to corrupt your own values. In other words, you know, we all think of ourselves as good people, but good people are good people because they act on their goodness, not because they think of themselves as good, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I saw an injustice, even if it didn't apply to me, I was safe in America at that time, even if it had another group of people involved in it, I felt it was my human and personal responsibility to do something about it now that I am living in a country that gave me personal freedom, right? America is a contentious country right now with a lot of freedom, now, but personal freedom in America does exist, you know, the, the, the idea, at least for me. So, so that's how I started, you know, my journey, you know, Women for Women International. I, you know, I said, okay, well, let's mobilize women. And I was studying women's rights at that time in school. And I was researching about rape and wars. And in it, and it really, you know, I started Women for Women International with my husband at that time, Amjad Atala, with like helping 33 women in September 1993. And it evolved, as you mentioned, to helping nearly half a million women, you know, to be exact, 483,000 women, you know, um, and mobilizing and distributing $146 million, et cetera, et cetera. But it's really, I mean, like it became big organization and had 700 staff and it's somewhere in the middle like 15 years after building the organization and moving from one war to the other, from Bosnia to Kosovo to Rwanda and Congo and Afghanistan. And did I realize, oh my God, that this work that I'm doing, helping women stand on their feet, you know, helping them break, mobilizing them to break their silence, to speak about the rape and the violations that they've encountered, to do, you know, because when we're silent, we become co-opting in the, we co-opt ourselves in allowing for the story to like keep on going. So break the silence, be strong, be independent. It took me, and I would like mobilize thousands of women. I mean, I would go to Congo and I would have these thousands of women singing about their power, dancing. And it really took me meeting one woman to, to realize, oh my God, I am working on my own trauma. Amazing, amazing. 15 years later, realizing that this, and it was, I, I tell you the story in a brief way. This woman in Congo was telling me about how she was raped. Her nine-year-old daughter was raped. Her 21, 22-year-old daughters were raped. How the rapists, you know, pillaged everything and then burnt their house. And then she looked at me, and these stories are always horrifying, always horrifying. And I uh, welcomed my heart being hor horrified by, by them because I always mm. believe that the day my heart stops, uh, the pain uh, or it becomes numb is the day I have to worry. 
you know, about it, you know, the way I have to leave actually, because as long as it feels, it's okay. So she tells me, she said, I've never told anybody but you my story. And I'm like, you know, I'm a storyteller. Let me tell you, I I will tell, you know, I usually take a story like yours, go and tell it to the world so I can raise attention and money to your country, you know, and bring it back, not to you, to other women as well. Should I keep this one a secret? And she said, if I can tell the whole world about my story, I would. So other women would not have to go through what I have gone through. But I can't. You can. You go ahead and tell the story just not to the neighbors. And that's something about what she said to me really hit me. And here's how it hit me, because I drove after the interview with her from Congo to Rwanda, which is a five hours drive, and I cried throughout the whole drive. And I cried because I realized that this poor woman in Congo uh, had more courage, not, not her poverty, she's illiterate also, had more courage than me which is a middle-class educated woman who is helping her. And and while she was willing to speak about what happened and connecting the story of one woman to the collective story, if they know what happened to me, maybe they will stop it from happening to other women. That she had that consciousness while I, on the other hand, was hiding my story the middle class, educated, proud, feminist, blah, 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 was shamed in shame and embarrassment to tell my story. And it was a moment in which I realized I can't ask people to do and mobilize women to do what I'm not capable to do myself. So either I take a step forward and go into my fear and my shame of telling the story, which is my trauma, right? My, that I was raped, that I knew Saddam Hussein, that I was displaced, that I was in an arranged marriage, that I was in an abusive marriage. These are all very shameful aspects of me as a feminist, women's rights activist, right? Either I go and say it and take a leap of faith and sort of strip myself naked in front of the whole world and be free and be in honesty to myself, or or I leave the job because I am not in integrity with it. Uh, and I decided to do the, the first one, which is to tell my story and my memoir between two worlds. And it was perhaps the most courageous, well, I mean, I've done the, one of the most courageous acts to have done and to, and that telling my own vulnerability and my own trauma paved the path for my own compassion to be honest, to as I deal and as I mobilize other women. Because I, I came to realize we can't ask people to do what we cannot do in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we are, should be like, each person should be like a doctor. You you know, I'm, I'm not saying the doctors do that actually, but you know, there are doctors who test themselves with their own invention, you know, with their own uh, remedies. Well, I can't advocate for breaking the silence if I don't break the silence. I can't advocate for healing if I am not healed. I cannot advocate for happiness and good health for everyone if I don't experience that. And for the longest time, my advocacy was very disconnected from my intimate life. Very, very, it was like outward, I'm saying all of this, but inward, I'm not working on it. 
And until I integrated the two, you know, were, and, and realizing they are in a flow that unless I do that, I cannot be an advocate. Uh, it didn't, it's, you know, the, the pressure of them, the, the flow of them became, became one and became easier. And it did not, and it lost the fierceness of it, to be very honest. But I think it became more potent and more uh, more truthful uh, in myself. And I think as others hear it from me. Mm. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's, that's already the most important information, I guess, in, in a nutshell that we need to hear. Because I think that's also exactly why we do the summit is, is precisely for what you said. Because you also said one one thing that I want to just underline this because I find it very beautiful is the before it was more fierce and it was out there, then it became more regulated and it is much more potent because the words, your words and your energy match and uh, it became one. So that's really powerful. And I think it's so true because often, because we speak a lot about the disconnect inside that we mentally know many things, but we can't walk our talk because it's it's disconnected in the body and emotions. And also maybe later for our conversation later that the mind is disconnected from nature, from our body. And then we can talk all kinds of things, but we can't live it. And I think that that's very, very powerful. So it's very beautiful. It touches me when you speak. And also that, that the emotion comes with it. Because that's also maybe, let's stay there for a moment. Because when you saw, uh, because it, I heard two things when you spoke. One was, there was a moment that you realized, uh, Serbia, Croatia, that you, you, you saw something. But then many people might see things in the world that that they feel, wow, this is unjust or this cannot stay like this, but then we don't act. And the question is, what what makes the difference to turn that into an action? So that's that's an interesting question. And the second question I have is when I listen to you, because being exposed to, as you said, the, the women in Congo, when you hear about rape, when we really hear rape, about rape, so we hear it with our bodies, so it's painful. And and how how did you resource yourself? Because many people burn out when they do what you do for such a long time. And and how did you stay resourced? I mean, one part you said already, like you did your own inner work, but maybe you can speak to these two points. How do we move into action? Because I think many people, especially you didn't have billions of dollars to, you had, you know, you, and you did it. So that's amazing. Well, let me address the first one, because for me, it is about my integrity, right? It is my, you know, and I, it's this like being good human, right? Good humans, we all think of ourselves as good humans, I believe. Everyone thinks of themselves good human. But good humans requires action, you know. We can say I'm a good human, but then I am not conscious about how many bottles of plastic waters I have plastic bottles of water I drink and keep on drinking, and I'm, I'm not conscious about my behavior, right? You know, uh, I say I'm good humans, but I, you know see something bad and I look at the other direction, right? Like for me, so it is very personal for me. You know, it is, you know, and partially because I grew up with no freedom, no freedom. Mm -hmm. And so when I lived eventually in a land that gave me personal freedom, 
for me until today, Thomas. I mean, like every time I speak freely, it's like tasting chocolate for the first time. I get excited every time. But so because, you know, so I didn't have that opportunity to be in integrity, you know, and I knew it and I'm grateful for it because I was, I was not oblivious to the lack of integrity. You know, I, uh, growing up, I grew up, uh, out of the elites, you know, we were the friends of the president. So you can easily forget perspective. You can easily lose perspective and think everyone is living like you, you know, private cars and helicopters and, you know, the nicest food and all of that. Or you can be aware and say, oh, oh, not everyone is doing that. And actually a lot of people suffering. So for me, I had, I'm lucky to be aware. You know, I was lucky to be aware because not everyone is, you know, and to act is my integrity. It's not, I didn't know any Bosnian or Congolese or they, they spoke languages I did not know, religions and cultures I had no connections with. But it's me, it is me acting about this injustice because again, when I uh, avoid it, I invariably legitimize it. And allow for the corruption of my own values as a good human. Now, having said that, I don't believe we can act on every injustices around the world. It, you can't. So pick your battle. And for hmm. me, there is no judgment of what is it. If all your energy goes into the street you're living in and bringing fairness and justice in that street, that's great. If your energy goes into like the world, that's it doesn't matter. I can't, I don't have as a human all the, the capacity to be worked out about every single injustices in the world. But I choose my battle and choose what is personal and ticks my heart, right? But I always try to, you know, so so that's my advice when people say, oh, you do such a big thing. I'm like uh, doing so. I was like, there's no judgment. There's no comparison in here. The, the, the judgment is you. You. Are you in integrity or not? And only you know that, right? No, no one can know. That's it. So that's for me is the issue. It's, it's, a, it's a moral compass that I have for myself. No one impose it on me as a good human, you know? And I worked, 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 worked. <laughs> and I would come from any of these strips, like the one I met with Nambito, as you said, and I would just go to my room and just cry for days until there are no more tears and then I go back, right? And I don't recommend it because what happened is then that I would collapse, you know? And then first the collapse was the beginning when I was 26, I started collapsing once the first time, right? I was like, <gasps> you know, and I had no idea what happened. I remember going to the therapist and I was just crying. And she said, are you doing well? I was like, yes, everything is okay. Is your husband treating you well? Yes, I love him. Is work doing well? Yes, I just got this big award for the White House. Is your like is your school because I was studying and working? Is your, yes, I just got straight in. And she's like, so what's the problem? I was like, I don't know. And I, she's like, at the end, her recipe was go to vacation. Like vacation, like it was, and it didn't occur to me, right? So then I would start like the more you work and the more you go and succeed, the more the collapse becomes more regular. And frankly, I saw that in myself. I see that in a lot of activists today, right? <laughs> you crash, you crash, and the crash sometimes every three months, sometimes every week, every week. Sometimes physically you become sick all the time. So 
you know, whatever it is, right? But these are crashes. And at the beginning, I didn't know, but so I, at the beginning, I would go to retreats, you know, four or five days retreats to work on myself and, and come back and they would last me for a few months until I crashed again. So I experimented with a lot of scenarios. I go to retreat, but they all entailed working on myself, all of them. So some of it were retreats, some of it having a therapist, some of it having a life coach, some, I mean, everything. I tried everything, right? All of them ultimately taught me about being in aligning, alignment, aligning in my alignments in myself and integrity in myself between my inner values and my outer values. And, and realizing ultimately that if I am giving out of like an empty well, mm-hmm. yes, right? I'm exhausted the whole time. And I even become resentful to be very exactly, honest. Exactly. But if I am giving from a full well, if my well is full and has plenty of water, honestly, it doesn't bother me whoever wants to take some of the water. Like, oh, sure, here. But I am full. So it took me a very, very, very long time to realize that self-love and self-kindness is essential and integrated part of being a humanitarian and an activist. And it took me, and I'll tell you this story, three years ago, around this time, really, I, I I was rushed to the hospital and I thought I was dying in a moment where I was grabbing from my last breath, right? My... I couldn't breathe. The doctors were around me. My body was moving on its own. Like someone is like pushing me under the water. And with a lot of intervention and all of these things, you know, finally I was able to, they were able to like get control and put oxygen. And in that moment, just before that moment where I thought I am taking my last breath, the thought that came to me was not, did I accomplish enough at all? was not, did I do enough? Did I help enough people? The thought that came to me in that intimate moment between me and my heart was kindness. And the question became, did I live my life in kindness to myself and to others? Did I live my life in in love to myself and to others? And the truth is, it took me a year and a half to process these questions, I'm still processing them, is that I have lived in kindness and in love to the outside others, uh, the far, 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 far others, right? But I did not know what it meant to live in kindness and in love to myself. And sometimes I would lie to you if I didn't say it, to my immediate others. You know, the people we love the most, we take them for granted and we express all our frustration on them. And so it took me a long time to realize that the two are interconnected. Now, I mean, you know, you know, I came to realize, I thought self-love was getting a massage and having a manicure and pedicure. Not at all. Self-love for me is a connection. I don't know how to express it, but visually where my heart gives it spreads its arms to me and we our hands lock in with each other and hearing my heart saying don't leave me again 
So it's a connection to the heart. I feel, I think of my heart as a temple that I have to visit every day and that I have an appointment with it every day mm. and I get to rest there. I get to connect with it there. I get to hear it there and I get to understand my heart's language. And then eventually that led me to respect the fact that this soul inside me is my responsibility to take care of it, right? That I was abusing it for good reason, humanitarian work, all of that. But nevertheless, I was not honoring it, honoring that this is my God, it's God's gift to me, mm. right? And I was taking advantage, not seeing it, not, not talking to it. I was abusing that soul of mine. And so self-love for me is that connection with ourselves in a way that is uh, intimate. It is, it, I don't know how to explain it. I'm happy ask me more if you want. But once I learned that, the giving became not about absolutely giving everything in me like a, I'm a piece of cloth where you like squeeze every drop of it. it. The giving becomes a flow between you and I, the people I'm helping and myself, you know, right? It's just, it's a flow. So it took me a very long time, many crashes, nervous breakdowns, uh, depression, quitting from woman for woman saying, I can't do it anymore. I have nothing left in me to give you know, self, uh, you know, going into self-doubt. Who am I? Am I a failure? Am I successful? Am I, uh, blah, who am I? Who am I? Until I came to the conclusion, how dare you ask, who am I? I am. I am. I think you're speaking also to the lives of many people doing activist or humanitarian work in the world with the crashes. That's also why I ask you how you experienced that. And it's so lovely to listen to your self-honesty, like uh, you are transmitting also the arc of your journey while you speak. And, and I think it's so important that all those uh, stages of your own journey were important. You know that you uh, all the learnings were important, and and I think what you you spoke to that also I think want to underline is the the squeezing oneself versus like a circuit of of flow between us and the world, and that's actually like action in out of alignment or in alignment. So that that were beautiful beautiful descriptions of the like your own spiritual path with many kind of archetypal stations in it. So that's really beautiful. And so um, maybe you let, since we talk about this already, maybe you can speak a little bit. So how, because I think what we all go through in one way or the other is some kind of integration of our own traumatization, like our personal traumatization that's connected to our collective trauma that we were born into. And then maybe you gave some hints about your own spiritual journey, your soul and your spiritual journey. Maybe you can can speak a little bit how that worked for you, because I think these two elements are, I, I think, are important, like a grounded spirituality that doesn't avoid the worldly difficulties, but really looks at them deeper and, and turns them into kind of the food for our growth. 
because sometimes spirituality is being used to get out of life and what what you spoke about it it's getting into life and kind of fertilizing our journey through our difficulties and i think that's what i heard from you maybe you can speak a bit to embodied spiritual practices uh, since you lived it yes or you're living it yourself well it's very good point uh thomas because you know first of all Part of me is a seeker, right? It's just I am uh, in love with the divine. I just, I really am. And that, you know, you either have it or I don't know. I don't know how to acquire that. I've had it since I was a child. And, you know, and I, you know, my mother, I grew up in a very secular family. And my mother used to tell me, never think of God as one thing. God is in the air. God is in the trees and the flower and the cat in the ground and the sand. God is everywhere. And I'm so grateful for that, right? Because I never uh, attach a concept to the divine. I really don't care what the divine mm -hmm. <laughs> is. I mean, people define God and divine and different things. I have no judgment, but there is, I have that love and I don't know what it is, but it made me seek different uh, aspects of spirituality you know i rejected the religion i am uh, not rejected i avoided the religion i grew up with which is islam avoided it and i was very angry at god and at the restrictions and i end up thinking that i can find spirituality in other traditions right so i went with you know i studied buddhism and i went with indigenous tribe in north america and you know i learned a lot from them and embraced me and we did the sweat lodges and all of these things and then i went to shamanic traditions in uh, the you know in south america you know and learned a lot from you know shamanic traditions in south america and then i went and i had a life coach from the shamans of the basque region and uh, you know and there was a lot and you know, I like just like just kept on exploring, you know, until two things. Until one day, uh, you know, I was speaking in Saudi Arabia many years ago, and I realized Mecca was only one hour away. So I'm just like saying, oh, it's an hour away. Sure, let me go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, and someone arranged a princess arranged a trip for me. I was like, okay, sure, I'll go. And I realized here I am rejecting the tradition that I grew up with and, and going and traveling the world to, to explore all kinds of different religions and spiritualities and da, da, da. And going back to Mecca with that perspective, right? It wasn't a religious pilgrimage. I just did it because I was an hour away and it ended up being most profound experience for me for many reasons. But once it's realizing they're all saying the same. They're all saying the same, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah. God, like, you know, the traditions I learned with from my indigenous Nishnabi tribe in the nation in Canada was actually very similar to what I'm doing in the pilgrimage uh, traditions. Right, right. right. I was like, oh, my God, you know, um, and there's and that night that I visited Mecca, um, I dreamt, uh, and you know, I don't want to go into the details. I wrote about it in my last book, Freedom is an Inside Job. But I dreamt that night, I said that I asked God, God, were you there? Because Mecca is about the house of God, right? Uh, and I was like, were you there? And what I heard in the dream, like, no, <laughs> that was not about me. That was about bringing you all 
to in one place so you may see each other. So you may see each other. And I realized like at the end of the day, the uh, all that we need, you know, and as part of our healing is to see each other. Exactly. But because when we are dividing each other, bad, good, he, he she, we are not seeing the humanity, the souls of each other. We're so stuck in our anger and in our, you know, division. And you did this to me. Does it hurt me? And I'm telling you that as a woman of color, as a, a from the third world, developing world, who had been colonized, and frankly, my country, Iraq, had been absolutely destroyed, destroyed. So I have a choice of either being stuck in that narrative that I come from a victim part of the world, victimized part of the world with colonization and then invasion and then destruction of the country and as a woman of color with a white man and then all that they did. And I would lie to you if I tell you I don't have that anger. I would lie to you. If I, of course I do. It breaks my heart over and over and over again to witness that story in myself and in my people and my country and all of that. But, but I have a choice of staying in that anger. And every time I'm angry, I'm building a thicker, thicker, thicker wall mm -hmm. or shifting it to the seeing of each other. Exactly. as also humans as good humans and with compassion now the other side if they meet me with that compassion then a third route opens up for healing mm -hmm. right? if they don't meet me with compassion then thank you very much i'm moving forward but i will not stuck be stuck in my anger because it's only separating us rather than bringing us together and to see each other. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, it's very touching. You're saying many, many beautiful things. I want to like what you said about seeing, because I totally agree. For me, it's the same, like seeing is presence. And then you said for you to see each other, I think that's exactly the healing also of collective trauma is that we can slowly open up the veils or liquefy those veils to see each other again. And I think that's so important to see each other in our souls. And that's basically also the healing movement for the world, I think, that we learn how to see each other again and not stay stuck in this kind of veils that we carry from the past, but also to respect that and let that like let that be conscious. So that's very powerful what you said. Well, yeah. I want to just add, because that's what I worked on in my last book. My last book was about, you know, it's called Freedom is Inside Job, but it's really about owning our shadow and our light as a way to transform ourselves and the world. So what allow me to, I can be, I can tell you I'm a woman of color from Iraq, you know, been a colonized, blah, blah, not, I don't mean blah, 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 all the things that happened to me. And I stick to, I am entitled to my anger, righteous anger. And you are a white man who has done, who come from the lineage of doing this and this and this. And so I can, you know, I'm angry at you. But if I, I'm, I'm asking everyone to go, I ask myself, let's say, to go deeper and say, where am I in alignment to my values? And where am I not in alignment to my values? Right? Because I can say I'm good and you're bad. And we're, that's the conversation. 
But if I really, really to address my alignment, right, and fine tune it, beside I'm good and bad, they are good people and they're bad people, I'm not constantly good. At all, I have as much of a shadow in me as I have light in me, you know, and rather than ignore the shadow and dump it under the rug and ignore it, which then makes the other side see it. It's obvious our shadow is always clear to other people. So rather than ignore it and pretend that it doesn't exist, but here I am. I just gave you an anger fit in here, but it's not my shadow. You just like hide it, right? Or to say, oh, I have anger issue. You know, let me address it. It's my shadow. Uh, it is, you know, it's my shadow. I need to work on it. I am working on it. But the minute you acknowledge it, you put the rain on it, first of all, for your life. But then it made me more compassionate to the very people that I thought are bad and I want to try to convince them to do otherwise. What I'm trying to say is that I can't just, if we are keep on preaching to each other, we're hitting each other. If I, if we reverse the process and say and ask ourselves, am I in alignment to my values? No, I'm not. It's very hard to be in alignment with your values all the time. You know, you try, but it's truly very, very, very hard. It's expensive when it comes to climate change, you know, and it's uh, vulnerable when it comes to relationships, you know, uh, because to acknowledge to someone that you have done something bad uh, is to also acknowledge that your vision of yourself is not exactly the same. Right. So it is not easy to be in consistency with a concept, but it's worth the try because the more you try to be polishing yourself and to be in consistency and you acknowledge the shadow side of you. Right. And then you put the rain on both horses, the dark horse and the light horse. The more you become compassionate to the very others that I'm scared of. The fundamentalist, the popularist, the right winger, all of these things that I'm scared of, I become more compatible because then I find more a language that is not preaching, that is can be heard, I believe, from my honesty and my truth. Maybe heard, maybe not. Not everyone hears it. But at least there's a better chance of being heard. You know, if you're actually speaking of saying, I suffer with this, I suffer with prejudice on this issue. I do, by the way, on this and this issue. I suffer with, you know, like you talk about your own prejudice as opposed to thinking of yourself as absolutely a good human, which is impossible for any of us to be. Exactly, exactly. It's beautiful what you said, the preaching is the disowned speech and speaking from your vulnerability is your own process. And that's very powerful. It's very beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's very beautiful to listen to you. It reaches me a lot what you're saying. It's very beautiful. And uh, also, like I love, I love the the honesty that you transmit. Like in your own in your own inner work, it's very much to feel when you speak. Like how you go through your own inner process. It's very beautiful. Thank mm, you. Thank, thank you. It's so interesting because people think it's vulnerable. You know, when I when I speak, and uh, it is vulnerable, but it is vulnerable after processing it. Exactly. Like, you know, exactly. So it may sound vulnerable that I'm speaking about my shadow or like putting myself out there in the world in all my writings. But honestly, for me, it's not vulnerable. I processed it. I know it. It's clear in me. 
this is my shadow, this is my light, I know it. And what's uh, before it was vulnerable. When we don't own our shadow, that's vulnerable because you can say you have anger issue and you're like, I don't have it. And you become different, hmm. right? Right, right? But now you say, oh yes, of course I do. I'm working on it, you know? And so you do that, you know, and I'm using anger as an example, you know, but it's not necessarily, whatever. So it is then, it is you're owning it and it's, it becomes less vulnerable because you're owning it, right? Mm. And it is you're processing it and you're talking about it. And so it dissolves from the potency of it and the tension and the pretense that I am all <laughs> have it together. Not, there is a, I mean, in a world of social media and all of that where we're all projecting the best of us, the truth is we're all a messy uh, experience that's trying to figure it out. You know? That's right. That's right. That's so beautiful. Yeah, that's what I meant also before the, the the transmission. Because I think we can feel it if if somebody did some work inside, we can we can feel that it's transmitted with the words. The body says the same thing as the words, and I think that's that's also really trustworthy. That's beautiful. And when you when you spoke about now you transitioned a bit to social media. When we go for a moment, because I think what you said is also very true for. On the collective level, media, and since you also uh, were into journalism or are into writing and publishing, so when when we inform the collective body, I think we see the same thing. Like the disowned information has one impact, or let's say I would call this the non-trauma-informed journalism. And the more trauma-informed journalism that comes from a more owned place inside has a different impact in my understanding. And I would love, since uh, you worked in this domain also or working, so maybe you can speak a little bit to how you think the same thing can be applied to the collective body. When we say, you know, we are collectives and there's a collective information system that info either informs, I like the word in form. Yeah, like, I love, yeah. You know, I have a form of you inside of me. So there's intimacy or I'm not getting or I'm only partly getting informed. So then we are all very, you know, our phones there. It seems like we are so informed, but actually we don't feel much of what we read because it gets stuck here. It doesn't inform us. It doesn't create a form in the body of what we read. So I would like to hear your thoughts on that a little bit. Well, I think, I mean, I'll go to, I'll start with a journalism part of it because I do feel it is a sector that needs a, a reflection on itself. It is teaching because the premise of journal, I have not studied to be a journalist. I did, you know, 10 years of journalism after I left Women for Women, but not as a professional journalist, you know, um, but more about how do we use stories as a tool to inspire and to make us think about other perspective, right? For me, it's a woman's perspective. But and then I came to realize that there's a sort of the, the standard teaching of journalism is that I am an objective figure, right? Talking about objective truth, which uh, truth, first of all, uh, can be objective if it's truly being conveyed from 360 degrees. You know, you're in the room in the center and truth has this angle and this angle in each corner. That's the truth, right? It's all of it. An individual journalist is hardly, you know, for me, you know, uh, can be as a human objective because we 
come with our stories of you know pain and prejudice and fears and worry and misunderstanding and all of it so it's applying the concept of objectivity in storytelling not yeah. in math, right i mean i'm not a mathematician but you know math is one plus one you can it's two or science, you know, but we're applying the story of objectivity or the value of objectivity in stories of human emotions, which is mostly not possible, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of because you, you're you not conveying the full story. There's act, you can say, this person burnt this field, for example, that's an act. But why and how and all of that, that's a subjective thing. And there's a Talmudic saying, we, it says, we see things as we are, we do not see things as they are, right? Mm-hmm. And it's hard to see things as they are because you actually have to catch yourself in the act of being biased, Acknowledge your own bias, putting it on the side and being able to go empathetically to listen to the other person. My favorite, I mean, it is hard because it takes you, right? I mean, my favorite, uh, my proudest story, to be honest, and it's a very awkward story to talk about, is interviewing the family of one of the terrorists who killed 150 people in France uh, in 2015. And because I was afraid of them, right? I was very afraid of them. They are the family of a terrorist and they are of me. I am the journalist. Mm -hmm. And over many days of convincing them to try to talk with me, um, I mean, it's it's already out there, but I, all what I can say is see the story, either they are terrorists, thus they are 100% fully bad, the family of the terrorists, or to see their story, still understanding, still does not justify the, the horrible terrorist act their son did, right? But looking at the story, at their emotions, at the complexities of his mother's emotion, of loving her son, but hating what her son for what he did, of... That is, it opens up a whole new reality. Mm-hmm. A reality that does not center the story of this individual, it centers the story of our collective uh, mm-hmm. possibility of how, as a society, we have come to create this reality. How did we all do it? Right? So it's not to take the crime away from him because what he did was criminal. But it is also to say, I can either say it's all him. And, and and I am, you know, all to say, let it, what have we done and what can we do to address the larger symptoms, the undertone, you know, that we need to address so that does not happen again, right? It's easier to say, this guy is bad. It's harder right. to say, where, have, where are the parts where we are complicit and complacent, you know, in creating a reality that generated this guy and when you look at it and it doesn't take away from his responsibility it doesn't take away from his crime it doesn't take away anything from his story but it gives us another perspective to address the same story with another light a light that we can perhaps heal from you know perhaps move forward from rather than be stuck so i don't know if i answered your question but i do think 
that that honesty in the sector of journalism to say, I come with this bias and prejudice. You don't have to declare it, but at least understand it in yourself, right? And understand that it's hard to be objective for one person to tell the full story in an objective way. We are all ultimately telling our opinions. Mm. Uh, but the collective of this truth makes the truth, the absolute truth. So I don't know if I ask your your question or not, my attempt. It's my understanding of it. Yeah, you answered it beautifully. And you spoke also to something I anyway wanted to ask you because, and your example uh, illustrates this beautifully is the the interdependence of the individual. I also speak often about this interdependence, how we as society pull ourselves out and say, oh, this is the bad guy and I'm the clean person. And they, so it's all over there instead of where have we been? So how does this relate to us? And I think that's such an important question that you brought in. And I think that's that's a very powerful answer. So thank you for that. I, I very much resonate with what you're saying. Not many people like it, to be honest, because you take any crisis, racism, the Me Too movements, you know, terrorists, in all of it, I believe all of us uh, have our role in being complacent and complicit in it. You know, Me Too movement, you can say Harvey Weinstein is the exclusive bad guy. He's always a bad guy. He should go to prison. But how we all collaborated in a system that allowed for men like that do whatever they wanted to, and we all look the other direction, and we all commercialize sex in our media and all of that. That is part of our collective responsibility, right? I and agree. you know, it's easiest to put the hat to put all the guilt on one person. Very, uh, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm not a Christian, so I don't want to cross that line. But like, you know, what Jesus took all our sins? No, all of, you know, like you know, you we all have our sins, and we need to own our sins, you know. Not to punish ourselves, but to develop and to evolve as a society and as a collective. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, like to take our shares out of the collective shadow world and to reown it and turn them into light. That's so powerful. And I actually think it's very important to say that even if it's not sometimes so popular, so but I think it's 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 so important that we see the collective shadow. There is a collective dimension to trauma and shadow, and that we are all part of that. And it's not only somewhere. It needs actually. I think that's the collective healing movement. Is exactly. Uh, what you describe that we do that. Um, and also how often we might ignore in daily life, because you said we are complicit, like how often we might meet people where we don't listen to our own intuition that something is strange. I saw this already two times in my neighborhood. I didn't, I looked away because I didn't want, and then like, you know, things happen that there's a whole line of events that lead up to a school shooting. That, that led up to a school shooting. And and I think that that's very important that we don't see this separate. Actually, the like why we do this collective trauma work also is like to look at what are collective symptoms. And I think one collective symptom is absence and is indifference and is separation. And that we learn to think in separation units instead of that we are all life. You know, we are all the society. The society is not around us. It's all over. It's through us. And but the, our subjective experience might give us this sense that oh, I look at nature around me, but I'm also nature. It's not just it's it's everywhere. You are nature, so we are all nature. 
And maybe maybe this brings us to the to I see our time. Right? So it's so interesting to talk to you. So I like time flies. I need to also take care a bit of the time. But when we talk about nature for a, a moment, when you look at like your your work led you to do a lot of climate uh, work uh, right now. And maybe we can apply some of the trauma principles or shadow principles. How, how, what's important now? What, what do you think is important for us to see that we are going into a more and more of a crisis? And how does our inner world and our collective world work together either to solve it or make it worse? What, what, uh... Well, for me, the first step is to make it personal. Right. I mean, because as as long as we think of climate change as an intellectual issue, we're not connecting to it. Right. And, you know, sometimes I say, honestly, if Earth was a lover, she would have broken up with us a long time ago for being the most selfish, narcissist, controlling, greedy, taking her for granted kind of lover. Right. We all are that. We are all that. But everyone will understand the lover parts. You know, because we all had this experience with a bad lover, right? Or a boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever it is, right? So, so personalize it, personalize it. And for me, the personalization happened in my new life. To be honest, I told you I almost died. It took me a year and a half to recover. And in that time, you know, I had had my list of happiness, you know, of which is always career, 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 career. Then, you know, then you go into, you know, you have, of course, your family around you, then financial security and vacations and nice clothes and whatever, like the material things mostly, right? I almost die. And I, then I come back and I become very vulnerable with my illness. And and I had a, a, a severe case of Lyme disease. And I promise you, when I, when all my intellectual tools were taken away, what was left in me is, you know, humility. Mm-hmm. And the only time I was able to like recover was being in nature. And in that, you know, humble moment where I could barely walk and barely breathe, I felt each tree was telling me like a, a, a cheerleader, you can do it, you can do it. You know, each wave, you know, was a cheerleader giving me its oxygen. Literally, it became very intimate experience for me and very personal experience for me. And I came out of this experience with a few things. First, my own list for a happy day right now, which has nothing, you know, used to be very career oriented. Right now it is, you know, a walk in nature, (laughs) (laughs) an appointment with my heart as I talk to you about, drink a lot of water, eat healthy food, connect with family and friends, do something in the arts. That's very, very important. The soul needs art, in my opinion, my soul does. And live your purpose, whatever that is, live your purpose. So it's very like only of them, one of them had purpose and the other before it was all work, 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 right? But the but I came also out of it with feeling a personal responsibility because everyone who's been sick or has someone who's sick know that earth helps them, right? Know that basic oxygen, basic good food, basic good water heals them, basic, right? And, and yet we then we disconnect from that and we go into the speed of our lives and not uh, connect personally to earth. So first of all, I feel for me, my call out to others is to personalize it. 
it's a personal issue. Mm-hmm. You know, where's your connection? You know, you know, spend time if you can in any form or shape or form in nature. You know, I it's like nature became my teacher. You know, I'm learning gardening right now. It's my teacher, right? But the second thing is, you know, so that's one, personalize it. And then the second is um, the solutions to climate change is not outrageous, to be honest. I mean, I know the way the media is covering it is outrageous. It's very expensive. It's technology. And the truth is, you know, we need to do three things for climate change. Two of them are doable and we can do it today, which is to protect and preserve 50% of Earth. This is scientifically backed. I'm just saying it in a tone that is not scientifically oriented, but to protect and preserve 50% of Earth, that 50% is already mapped. People know where it is. There is a connection of how, where the corridor, where if we protect that, there's the wild animals and wildlife can come back. That's doable. We can coexist with that part of Earth. We just need to like be kinder to it. The second is to shift to regenerative agriculture. Doable, not impossible. We don't need technology to shift. We can do it today. Right. Same thing with the we can do it today. And it doesn't have to. We we don't have to wait for our government or a corporation to do it. We can do it in our lives. You know, we do it in the small way. No, it takes, you know, and the third one is renewable energy. And yes, you are right. This is technology and big industrialized uh, solution. But what I'm trying to say is personalize it and do, you know, to what you can do right now. My One of my favorite poem is um, by David White. And he says, take the first step, not the second, not the third, the step you call your own, you know? you know, And it's just like the intimate one. And we're constantly thinking what's gonna happen in 20 years, what's gonna happen in 30 years, oh my God. Well, let's take the first step. And the first step is something all of us can do today. In baby steps. So if you just end up doing buy this vegetable and not that vegetable or from that farmer and not this farm, like these are baby steps and they're all good steps, right? They're all uh, valuable steps. Don't judge yourself, but start the baby steps. Don't call, you know, don't go and think about the second and the third and the fourth. Eh? Start with the one underneath your feet, the one you can call your own. Mm. So that's yeah, so but, you know, I created, I co-founded a, a group called Daughters for Earth uh, with Jody Allen and partnered with One Earth, um, which to ask all daughters, you know, to, and honestly, their parents and their siblings and their children to join in basically making these two solutions happen, which is finding all these groups around the world who are doing this, mostly women-led efforts who are doing this, and putting more money behind them, putting more awareness behind them, but ultimately changing our personal behaviors in baby steps. Oh, that's beautiful, Zainab. The, like it's it's in Lao Tse said in the Tao Te Ching, like a journey of a thousand miles starts from beneath your feet. And that's exactly what you said. So we will listen to thousands of years of wisdom spoken by you. <laughs> yeah, it's very beautiful. Thank you very much. I would love to continue the conversation somehow in other ways. It's really refreshing. And I really honor your honesty and your authenticity and how you do your own work. This sounds to me very trustworthy and, and uh, beautiful. So thank you. Thank you thank for you that. So much. It's honestly, uh, it is I who thank you, A, for the opportunity, but also for seeing me.
you know, and I appreciate it. And I see you uh, as well. So grateful for the opportunity and best of luck to you and to all the work, the important work that you're doing. And I hope people hear it, that the cause we're working on, whatever it is, does not require us to self-sacrifice. It does not require us to self-sacrifice. Visit CollectorTraumaSummit.com to listen to more talks like this one and to sign up and be the first to know when the next Collector Trauma Summit is announced. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hoover. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.